0: I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but in your Bible, particularly in the last part of your Bible, we call the New Testament, there's a pattern. Particularly with the Pauline epistles, in particular, it tends to follow this pattern of you give theological instruction at the beginning of the book, and then it's followed by practical application. In other words, this is where uh, my pastor and I we got this idea from, basically that your theology drives your methodology there's this change that can can be expressed in many ways i've heard other people say well at the beginning of the book you have this exposition moving to your exhortation or there's a creed at the beginning moving into the conduct or doctrine to duty we saw that when we studied the book of ephesians together right great awesome doctrine and theology ephesians 1 through 3 right And then as soon as you start chapter 4, what word do you get? Therefore. Therefore. You see this change, even in the book of Ephesians. So you're moving from the indicative into the imperative. And so this movement took place in the book of Hebrews between chapter 11 and 12. And that's a, a very big divide in the book of Hebrews. But there's also some smaller divides that are following that same pattern. And one of those divides is uh, following closely here between chapter 12 and 13. You remember when we were in chapter 12, chapter 12 was building to this, this high point. And, and you come to the end of chapter 12 and it says, For our God is a consuming fire. Wow, thank you for that. And then immediately you move into chapter 13 and you have practical commands. What's the implication? Well, the implication is that uh, what what you think about God has everything to do with your relationship with each other and the world you live in. And so the question of our text here is answering this, my friends, that since God of chapter 12 is a consuming fire of Mount Sinai and he's also the consuming love of Mount Zion you need to ask this how should we then live how do you live based on the very nature of God glad you asked that question because Hebrews 13 tells us look at verse 1 verse 1 says let brotherly love continue do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The proposition from the six verses of Hebrews 13 is this, that God wants you to offer him acceptable worship. And those of you who are keen observers might wonder, okay, where in the world did you get that from? (laughs) I didn't see anything there about acceptable worship, so where did that come from? Glad you asked. You need to be asking that question. So look at the context. Chapter 12, back up. Back up, chapter 12, verse 28. It says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to god acceptable worship with reverence and awe so in this context we have this idea here of there there is acceptable worship of the one true god well what does that look like we all want to know what that might look like thank you god for telling us right here in chapter 13 glad you asked here's five ways that you can worship god today number 1 love christians God commands you to love Christians. Right there in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. You say, well, what is brotherly love? Well, the basic principle let's use Scripture to help interpret Scripture here for us because it doesn't go into depth for us. So, Romans 12, verse 10 says this Look, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference. To one another in honor. So, put in its most basic form here, brotherly love is you are to care for your fellow Christians more than you care for yourself. What's the greatest command, Jesus said? You love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so, when we are preoccupied with ourselves, we are still. Stifling brotherly love. By the way, this applies to the sisters too, just in case you're wondering. But there's another passage that is helpful. What is brotherly love? Well, Philippians 2, verse 3 says this Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own interest but also for the interest of others. So Philippians 2 is expanding on this idea here. Brotherly love is nurtured in your humility, and then humility grows out of a right spiritual knowledge. And so when we measure ourselves against the person of Christ, that's what's happening in Philippians 2, when you measure yourself against Christ, then you see yourself as you really are, and of course, The end result of that will be humility. You will be humbled. And so only then are we truly able to love as God wants us to love. Because otherwise, you just naturally love yourself. You say, well, okay, brotherly love, great. Uh, So why is brotherly love important? Why is this so important? Glad you asked. Number one, brotherly love is important because... It reveals to the world that we belong to Christ, yes, look at this it's in the Bible, because here's what Jesus says in john thirteen thirty five He said by this, all men will know that you are my disciples how if you have love for one another, that's how you show it that's how it's evidenced it's 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 showing itself in effect, God has given the entire world, a right evaluation of us on the basis of our love for each other. See, how we treat each other is speaking. It's communicating to people. It's a witness to the world. It's a testimony for Jesus Christ. It is of great importance that we then genuinely consider others better than ourselves because you're communicating to a lost world. Are you looking out for the interests of others above your own? And and hopefully you are. if you do, then in so doing, your very life is preaching a sermon. Some people aren't going to read the Bible. But your life can preach. Your life can teach. And hopefully it's a very powerful sermon. So brotherly love is important here because it's revealing to the world that you belong to Christ. And if you don't do this, then it shows that you don't belong to Christ. But number two, loving fellow Christians is also revealing your true identity. It reveals your true identity. It gives added assurance to us of our spiritual life in Christ. That is one of the points of 1 John. 1 John 3.14 says this, look at it. We know that we have passed out of death into life. In other words, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, here's one way. Here's one sign that you're going to heaven. Because we love the brethren, he who does not love abides in death. So if you want to know if you're a Christian or not, there's there's a lot of signs in the first, uh, first epistle of John. Read the book. It will show you, and you can know for sure if you have eternal life or not. So sure proof of salvation is found in your heart. It's our love for each other. And if, you, if, you're, if you're one of these people who are wondering about your salvation, you can ask, do I have a great concern for the welfare of the Christians that I know? Do I enjoy fellowshipping with Christians? Do I show my concern by ministering to their needs? And if the answer is yes to those kinds of questions, then you have a a very good evidence that you're actually a child of God. If not, then the Bible says you're abiding in death. So do you love God's other children in his family or only yourself? Number three, brotherly love is important because it delights God. This is important to God, therefore it needs to be important to us. See, nothing is more uh, pleasing to parents than to watch their children caring for each other. The Bible says this in Psalm 133, verse 1. Look at this. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. So when... God's children are caring for each other. They're helping each other. They're living in harmony with each other. What do you think God thinks about that? Well, God is hes both delighted as well as glorified in that. And so when we love each other to that particular degree, where we're willing to give of our lives to others, you're actually exemplifying God's own Son, Jesus. See, look what 1 John 3.16 says. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So, my friends, brotherly love. You say, man, this sounds really difficult. Yeah, it is. It doesn't come natural to you. You actually must will to love someone else. It's not natural. Uh, Let me give you an example of this. Uh, two two wonderful Christian men by the name of George Whitfield and John Wesley used to work together, if you know your church history. They used to be uh, really good friends working together in ministry, but as theology can do, theology can divide friends, and it did. See, one was a Calvinist and the other was an Arminian. And so they couldn't work together. They disagreed on, on very th- important theological matters, But nevertheless, they're godly men. John Wesley and George Whitfield were very godly men. And in fact, I love Whitfield's words. He wrote to his dear friend John Wesley. Look what he says to him. Even though they couldn't see eye to eye theologically. Here's what Whitfield says. "'My honored friend and brother, hearken to a child who is willing to wash your feet. I beseech you by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus our Lord,' If you would have my love confirmed towards you, why should we dispute? When there is no possibility of convincing, will it not in the end destroy brotherly love and insensibly take from us that cordial union and sweetness of soul which I pray God may always subsist between us? How glad would the enemies of our Lord be to see us divided. Honored sir, let us offer salvation freely to all by the blood of Jesus, And whatever light God has communicated to us, let us freely communicate to others. What blessed words. What a a great way to communicate brotherly love. And and may I suggest that's a good way uh, to show brotherly love, even to people whom you'll not see eye to eye with. And so I suggest you follow Whitfield's example here. And if you do, God will be delighted. But we move on in the passage here. We see a second way to offer God acceptable worship. Number two is show hospitality. Some of these might come as a shock to you because some people have weird ideas on worshiping God. So this is really practical. Number two, verse two, is do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Hospitality literally means love of strangers. And so in the ancient world, we, we don't usually live this way, in, in, at least in the Western society that we're in. But in the ancient world, hospitality often included putting guests up overnight. And sometimes it would go on and on and on for even longer. See, motels and inns and those sort of places uh, were very few in the ancient world. And often they had poor reputations. Often they were very expensive. And, and particularly among Jews, hospitality was a great virtue. It was a great virtue. And so Christians were were uh, exhorted to be hospitable. And it's interesting, if you go to the South Pacific Islands, some of my dear friends, my Christian brothers in the South Pacific Islands, understand what it means to be hospitable. See, you can show up at their house unannounced any time of the day, any time of the year, and they will provide for your needs. And you can stay as long as you want, and they won't ask you to leave. It happens all the time in those cultures. That is the accepted norm. They understand this command of showing hospitality. So that's, that's, what it, that's what God's talking about here when He's saying, do not neglect to show hospitality. But what is a stranger? Because it, it says hospitality is love of stranger. What, well What is that? Well, a stranger is somebody we do not know personally. Strangers, by the way, can refer to unbelievers as well as believers. Now, the Bible tells us, God tells us, our first responsibility is to our brothers and sisters in Christ. but our responsibility doesn't end there. Here's how the Bible describes this. Look at Galatians chapter 6 verse 10. It says, "While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith." In other words, especially do good to the Christians. And Paul, by the way, the Apostle Paul is just as explicit. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. And By the way, the all men <laughs> refers to females in this context, by the way. And not only females and males, it includes even your enemy. Even your enemies included in this. And here's what Jesus says, In Matthew 5, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, if you want to worship God, God says, show hospitality. In fact, Jesus says in the Gospels, when you do this, Jesus says, it's as if you do it unto me. Well, there's a third way that you can offer acceptable worship to God in verse 3 it says be sympathetic that's the idea be sympathetic because verse 3 just tells us hey remember these people in prison and remember those who are mistreated now the point here is that we should do our best to identify with needy people you try to put yourself in their shoes you heard that saying try to put yourself in their shoes or in this case in their sandals right we we know that if if we were starving and we were in need, we were mistreated we would we'd want some help if we were thrown in prison, we'd want someone to feed us and help us out if uh we would want people to come visit us. Prisons weren't nice places like they are today back in these days and so and may I remind you, Paul understood what it was like or whoever wrote this, these people understood what it was like. This was happening in the churches. People were being put in prison. And so we we should do for them what we would want done to us. It's a a principle. The Bible, we, we call it the golden rule. The golden rule is in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophet's came across an interesting way to hopefully illustrate this. Uh, Herman Melville, probably most known for writing Moby Dick, also wrote a a novel called White Jacket. And in in Melville's book, White Jacket, he has one of the ship's sailors who ends up becoming desperately ill, and he has a very severe abdominal pain. And the, and, and the, the ship's surgeon, who is named Dr. Cuticle, was very enthusiastic about finally having the possibility of having a real person to work on. (laughs) And he wanted a a challenge. He wanted his surgeon's ability to be challenged. And so he diagnosed this poor sailor as having appendicitis. And so Dr. Cuticle recruits some other sailors to serve as his helpers. And the poor seaman is laid out there on the table, and the doctor goes to work with skillful enthusiasm, and his incisions are precise. And while he's removing the the uh, the disease the, the diseased appendix, he probably points out some very interesting anatomical details of the guy laying on the table to these other sailors who are there helping. And uh, it's interesting because the book says as he's doing this, he's completely absorbed in his work. And it's a very impressive performance, but the sailors were not impressed. In fact, the sailors helping the doctor were appalled. You say, why? Well, it's because their poor friend, who was receiving the last suture, he's getting stitched up, uh, has died on the table. And sadly, Dr. Cuticle didn't even notice. Cold Dr. Cuticle... Some might say a man with ice water in his veins was insensitive and void of sympathy toward this dear sailor. And the point of the illustration is this, friends. Christians need to be sympathetic. (laughs) Don't be like Dr. Cuticle, okay? Uh, And and it's interesting, the Hebrew church here had earlier excelled in being sympathetic. If you look over at chapter 10, the, the Bible tells us this. Chapter 10, verse 32, verse 32 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So you say, okay, that's great. I'm supposed to be sympathetic. How can I show sympathy? Glad you asked. Here's three ways you can show sympathy. Three practical ways of showing sympathy. Number one, you can just simply be there when other people are in trouble. Now, Job's poor friends often get criticized for what they say, and rightfully so. Okay, they had some bad theology that comes out in the book. But one thing you can commend Job's friends for, when Job loses everything except his dear wife, and even she was criticizing, but anyway, uh, and you know he's just sitting there in pain, Job's three friends come and sit with him for an entire week and apparently said nothing. They were there for Job. That's a good example of a friend. Sometimes just the mere presence of a friend can be the best encouragement and the strength for someone. Let me encourage you to be there for people. Number two, we can give direct help. Uh, Paul thanked the Philippian church for sharing with him in his affliction And and that particular church actually gave Paul money to carry on his ministry, and God used the Philippian church to provide for the needs of the ministry, so Paul was able to travel around and and establish churches and so forth. By supporting him financially, they also encouraged him spiritually. And of course, you can pray for people, and don't belittle of that, because this is God's design, And, and even in Paul's ministry... Uh, Paul's ministry gives us an example of prayer as a way to help. In fact, in his closing words to the Colossian church, chapter 4, Paul says, remember my imprisonment. That was an appeal for prayer, by the way. They could not visit him. Uh, the money they uh, that, that would have been absolutely no help for him at that time in prison, but one thing they could do was pray for him. And Paul was thankful for that and asked them to do so. They supported him very powerfully through their prayer. So you can worship God by being sympathetic. A fourth way you can offer acceptable worship to God is by holding marriage in honor. Hold marriage in honor. You say, I don't get it. How 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 can I possibly worship God by holding marriage in honor? Well, may I remind you, read the first couple chapters of your Bible, that God is the one who established marriage at creation and has honored at marriage ever since the beginning of creation. And sadly, though, what we have happening in our world today is marriage is anything but honored. And... We have governments like our own here in New Zealand who have attempted to change the definition of marriage. Because they don't like God, they don't want to live under God and His rules. Let's just change God's rules and attempt to change what God has designed. Because we don't like His design. But notice the statement here in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Well that statement may have been a reaction to certain things that were happening around you know the first century. There were people who who had the this uh, this view of aestheticism. Uh there were a lot of aesthetic influences in the early church where some held celibacy to be a holier state than marriage. <laughs> By the way, you know what celibacy is, I hope. That's where you don't get married, you don't believe in marriage, you you Anyway, but there were there were some men, there were actually some men at this time, and, and, and it has continued on through church history, where they would castrate themselves thinking that uh, they had this mistaken notion that they could actually serve God in a more devoted way. They could be more holy, more pleasing to God this way. And the Apostle Paul warns that in the last day apostate teachers will forbid marriage. Read 1 Timothy chapter 4. But God holds marriage not only as something that is permissible, that, in other words, you can do, but God says marriage is honorable, and you're to have that high regard for it just like He does. Marriage is not a good point in this world at the moment, sadly. But God honored marriage. How did He do that? Well, first of all, He established it. Marriage is God's idea. It's a great idea. Uh, the Bible also says that Jesus honored marriage. In fact, he performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana. The Holy Spirit honors marriage by using it to picture the church in, like, Ephesians chapter 5, for example. And, of course, the Holy Trinity testifies that marriage is honorable. And so there is no person on planet Earth who is justified in dishonoring marriage. Let's just think about this for a moment because God is very serious here about sexual purity. God is very serious about sexual purity, and so should we. see illicit sex seems to be the norm for a lot of people today, right? Uh, in other words, sex outside of marriage with, within the covenant of marriage, but in God's eyes, it's always sin and is and is always going to be judged. No matter what the world tries to dictate and tries to teach us here, see, here's what Ephesians 5 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't be deceived, friends. The apostle also tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So nobody can say, hey, I can go have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want. It doesn't matter. I'm not harming anybody. God says, yes, you are. You're harming yourself to begin with. You're sinning against your own body. And So sexual sin not only is against God and other people, it's, it's also against your own self. So don't do it, God says. And some think God's just this killjoy, and he's, he's throwing out these rules because he doesn't want you to have fun. No. God is good. God is loving. There's there's reasons why God gives these rules. And so part of our moral responsibility to ourselves here is to be sexually pure. But the world today is obsessed with sex as it just never seems to have been before. I mean, sexual activity out part outside of marriage is just kind of the norm today, isn't it? It's normal for more and more people. And some of the more obvious results of that kind of a view are... It's just heartbreaking. We have increases in extramarital pregnancies. We have forcible rapes, illegitimate births, and and, and that's despite birth control and all kinds of other measures and abortions and so forth. We have venereal diseases of all sorts. My friends, can you see God's judgment here? Because God says He is going to judge the immoral person. We see even in this life, there is judgment taking place on planet Earth. And it exists in the broken homes, uh, the venereal diseases, the psychological and the physical breakdowns. There's murder, there's violence that is being generated as a result of uncontrolled passions. God's judgment is being lived out, and it's, it's a sad state. And it's not possible to live and act against God and to think you can get away with it there are terrible consequences terrible consequences God's very serious about sexual purity this is one way we can offer acceptable worship but there's a the last one mentioned in our text let's move on to something else cuz i don't it's it's really hard talking about that one isn't it but God says here number 5 you hold money loosely hold money loosely because verse 5 says, keep your life free from love of money. <laughs> so what's the problem there? Some people love attacking money, like money is the root of all evil, right? You ever heard the Bible taken out of its context and misquoted like that? You ever? That's a misquote of the Bible. Did you pick up on that? Money's the root of all evil, right? No! That's not what the Bible says. What's the problem there, my friends? What does God actually say? It's the money is neutral. What's the problem? It's the love of the money that's the problem. And so God tells us a negative command and a positive one here. What's the solution? Well, number one, don't be covetous. Don't be covetous. That's the tenth commandment. See, it's not wrong to earn or to have wealth. It's not wrong to have resources and and, and possessions. In fact, there's some godly men in the Bible who had lots of wealth, right? Abraham and Job, to name a few. Extremely wealthy men. Uh, there's also people mentioned in your New Testament, uh, who are uh, people who are wealthy. They're faithful believers. And so what's wrong with money then? Glad you asked. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, the love of money. Underline the word love. There's your problem. It's the love of money is the root of all evils and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. So please, my friend, notice the word love. That's crucial there. It's the longing after money and what it can do for you. It's basically loving yourself. Trusting in something other than God that is sinful here. And so... King David in your Bible counsels you this way, my friends. Look at Psalm 62, verse 10. He says, If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. There's the danger. We tend to set our heart upon wealth, money, and what it does for us. Well, here's what a wealthy man by the name of Job said. Job says this in chapter 31. He says, If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great, and because my hand had secured so much, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment. For I would have denied God above. Sounds like Jesus' teaching, doesn't it? Because what did Jesus say? You can't serve God and money. You can't. (laughs) So my friend, trust in money, what's the problem? You're not trusting God. Therein lies the problem. God wants you to trust him. Some some people love money. A lot of people love money, in fact, but they never actually acquire it. So it's not just wealthy people who have the issue of love of money. You realize this? In fact, there's probably a lot more poor people out there, people in poverty, who love money. See, other persons love, the love of money is actually in acquiring it. They live for the thrill of adding it to their bank account. They, they, they're obsessed with watching their stocks go up and down every day. And, uh, you know, and so forth. But for other people, loving money is they're hoarders. They're misers. And misers are not so much interested in increasing the possessions as they just want to hold on to what they have and they're obsessed with it misers are interested in increasing, not so much increasing their possessions. They just don't want to lose anything. And so they love money for its own sake. And then there's other people who are more interested in the things they can actually buy with money. You know, it's they, they live for the weekend, right? And the next thrill, and the next retail therapy, and they want to display their wealth. the conspicuous consumer is this person who is a a big spender he wants to flaunt his wealth and that displeases god and it separates us from him so whatever form of lo- a love of money may take in your life the, the spiritual result doesn't matter it's going to be the same same it, it displeases god nicer clothes a bigger house another car a nice holiday all those things might be tempting But God tells us here, you're to be satisfied. Don't be covetous. That's the problem. It's a a false worship. It's idolatry. But God says we're to be content with what we have. And that's the positive command here. Be content. Number two is be content. So you keep your life free from the love of money. And then God says there in verse 5, be content with what? With what you have. Be content with what you have. In other words, let me ask you this, friend. Is God enough for you? Is he? You say, well, where does contentment come from? I'm glad you asked. Because as Hebrews does a lot, Hebrews actually quotes from the Old Testament two times here. And that's why you have this funny-looking indentation going on in your Bible. It's highlighting for you two Old Testament quotes so, how can I be content? Well, number one, you have to believe that God will never forsake you. You must believe this. Beliefs have consequences, friends. You will always be covetous. You will always be sinning against yourself and God if you don't believe this. Do you believe that God will never forsake you? By the way, that's a quote from Joshua chapter 1, in case you're wondering. So, contentment. God wants us to be content. And so you have to understand, contentment comes from your communion with God. It's the only way you can be content. And so the more we focus on Him, the less you're going to be concerned about anything material in your life. And so when you are near Jesus, you're going to be overwhelmed with the riches that you actually have in Christ. Your earthly possessions simply won't matter when you understand what you have in Christ. And So, if my friend, if you want to actually have victory in this area of your life, you have to get close to Jesus. That, that's one of the purposes of the book of Hebrews. It, it's, it's exhorting us, keep coming to Christ, look to Christ, draw near to Christ. He is the source you need. He is supreme. He's the best in every way. So draw close to Jesus. Number two. How can I be content? Well, it all comes down to your to what you believe. Number two, what do I need to believe here? Believe that God will be your helper. Do you believe God is your helper? By the way, that's a quote from Psalm 118. I encourage you to read the whole chapter. It's a great chapter. But contentment here is having confidence in, in God's own nature and who He is. God, by His own nature, is a helper. He's not a distant, absent God. So, do you believe that this is God? Do you believe that God is both great and good, and both of those things at the same time, and He's always those things? He's great and good. In other words, what I'm saying, friend, is God has the ability to help you, and He also has the desire to help you. See, He's good and great. See, that would be a disaster if He wasn't both of those things. Think about it. If God didn't have the ability to help you, what good is that? And what good would it be if God has the ability to help you, but he just stands back and says, "Eh, I don't care. I'm just going to let them be. I'm not going to help. But God isn't that way, my friend. God has the ability to help you because he's great. And he has the desire to help you because he's good. He's good. Wow, what an amazing God we have then. So, you know what that means? You're in good hands. You're in the best place you can be. And that means no worries, mate. Keep calm and trust God. (laughs) I I don't know, that's probably not original. You can find it on the internet, I'm sure. Just Google images, you'll find it. But uh, you can be content. It's possible. You can be content with what you have because of God. That's the only way it's possible. So, my friends, how are you doing? You say, whoa, man, this is, whew, what a message, huh? Five ways I can offer acceptable worship to God. And some of you might be thinking, eh, I'm not doing so well, yeah. <laughs> There's hope. Are you offering acceptable worship to God? These these are some, some things that we can work on. By God's grace, he can enable you to worship him, to love him, With all of your soul, your entire being. Very practical. Go worship God this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being so practical here with us and showing us. Yeah, you are a a consuming fire. And uh, we, we can have the ability here to worship you because of your own nature. So... Thank you for showing us these things here in Hebrews 13. May you enable us to live them out in very practical ways. Enable us to love you as you desire to be worshipped. In Jesus' name we pray.